1: Welcome
0: to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. That's Mormon Discussion, all one word, dot podbean.com. You can also find us on Facebook under the name Mormon Discussion, all one word. Now to what you've been waiting to hear. Patrick Mason, welcome to the podcast. How are you today?
2: Doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: Patrick Mason is one of the editors in a book, War and Peace in Our Time, Mormon Perspectives. Uh, Patrick, you you also worked with uh, Richard Bushman, and then there's. Is it, am I going to say this right? David Pulsifer. That's right. But well, what was it like to work with those two?
2: Oh, they're both terrific. Of course, Richard is is well known to to people who follow the world of Mormon scholarship. Uh, he was my predecessor here at Claremont Graduate University and, and is just an uh, absolutely uh, delightful person, a devoted saint, and deep thinker. Uh, and and David Pulsifer is probably lesser known to people, but, but he is absolutely terrific as well. He's a professor of history up at Brigham Young University, Idaho, and is, is deeply committed to to these kinds of issues. He had a Fulbright Fellowship in India uh, where where he uh, studied and taught nonviolent theory and and so he's he's a scholar of American history but but deeply interested in, in nonviolence as well.
0: Good. I uh, when I pick this book up and look through it and for my listeners today we're gonna we're gonna talk about war, peace, violence, um, military actions, some things that that go on both within the scriptures and in our world today at large. And it was interesting when I picked up the book, uh, Patrick, I I looked at it and my initial reaction looking at the cover was that you were going to – that this book was going to try and give an opposing viewpoint so strongly – that one would be forced to kind of change their mind or position. And and what I found was a much more even-handed book. I As I flipped through pages, it was interesting. I saw one page where it talked about different scriptures that spoke of war, and then about, I don't know, 15 pages later, there was a section that shared all the scriptures that talked about joy and peace in the land. Uh, it seems to me that this book really goes to great lengths to, to be even-handed. Yeah, we we tried
2: really hard to to make it that way, and I, I'm glad you recognized that. This, this book came out of a conference that Richard Bushman and I put together at Claremont Graduate University in the spring of 2011. And we tried really hard to get people from a variety of different viewpoints on this. We know this, this is an explosive issue when we're talking about, uh, issues of war and peace. We know that people feel strongly about this. People feel committed to, to various sides and, and oftentimes have, have given, uh large parts of their life and even of course maybe some of them have served in the military or in the peace corps or things like that. So so this is uh this isn't always an an easy issue to talk about. But we didn't want to just have people we didn't want to have an echo chamber where you only had uh peacemix speaking to, to one another, or you only had people in, in, involved in military service or the national security talking to one the, another. We wanted to bring together voices from a, a, a lot of points on the spectrum, and uh, we were really pleased that people responded. We were pleased that we got a very wide range of, of smart, thoughtful people and at, at the conference. And then, and then we, that, that became transformed into the essays in the book. So I think of, of, of anything, and, and I'm proud of this collection, but I think that the, the thing I'm most proud of is the fact that we, we got a range of voices. And I think it is even handed. It, it won't be easy for anybody to read this book. There will be something that challenges everybody, no matter where you are on this issue.
0: What is the book, this book, War and Peace, and maybe just War and Peace in general? Have to do with the church's doctrine. Now, now I, I say this from the perspective of first getting my hands on the book, having looked into it. I, I kind of had to change some of my own views, but but for the person who is unaware of the book, I guess I'll ask it this way: uh, What does the book have to do with the church and its doctrine? Are we not Are we not focused on the gospel? And thereby, war seems to be kind of a facet of government. And maybe a lot of members would say it's not even the church's responsibility to kind of uh, put their nose into it. Uh, what does this book, uh, how does this book help us maybe see that that's not the case?
2: Right. I think that's a great question. And I think this is common for a lot of Latter-day Saints is they say, hey, you know, our, our primary responsibility is, is to save souls. You know, the threefold mission of the church, Well, now, now fourfold of redeeming the dead, proclaiming the gospel, perfecting the saints and helping the poor and the needy. Uh, that, that's, that's really what the church is all about. That's what we should be focusing our time on. And of course, all of that is, is absolutely true. But, but as uh as as disciples and, and as saints, uh we, we live in this world and uh I I feel that you know Jesus Christ made it made it pretty clear that, that his his disciples would live in the world, not of the world, but in it. That uh part of the world, of course, are issues of government, of politics, of economics, and war is is a reality. That people that humans have lived with since the the, the beginning of human civilization. I mean, the, one of the very first narratives in in the Bible is Cain and Abel. So violence has been with us a very very long time. And I think as as uh, as followers of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, we just, we can't just kind of run away from it or or put our hands over our eyes. I mean, there is tremendous suffering in this world. Uh, the 20th century was the most violent uh, century in world history. And, uh, Latter day Saints participated in it. Latter day Saints serve in militaries. Latter day Saints serve in the national security apparatus, not just of the United States, but of lots, lots of different countries. There were Mormons fighting for Nazi Germany, uh, and Mormons fighting for the United States. So they were, you know, literally firing on one another. What, so, so for us, the question is, is not how do we run away from this issue, but what does it mean to be a disciple of the Prince of Peace? That's one of Christ's titles. Uh, and so, so we feel like that, that any path of discipleship has to wrestle with this issue of what does it mean to be a disciple of the Prince of Peace in a world at war.
0: So we're talking to Patrick Mason today, author of War and Peace in Our Time, A Mormon Perspective, uh, and, and maybe it's, I don't know if it's appropriate to say author, I know that these other two men and you work together as editors, but it it's obviously took a lot of work to put these essays together and to, to share some Uh, perspective with them along the way. The next thing I want to kind of ask you about, when we look at LDS scriptures, and a lot of times members of the church, a majority of members of the church, I would even say, tend to see the world in a very black and white way. And so they'll right away look at the scriptures and pick out kind of their point of view and scriptures that defend their their position. And a lot of times, like you said, the Savior is seen as the Prince of Peace, but the scriptures seem to speak a lot to war and violence and some harsh things going on. Some of them even seem to be condoned by God. Would you mind speaking for just a moment on how the scriptures really aren't black and white on this issue?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, for, for me, the, God has given us the scriptures not to confirm what we already know, but to challenge what we think we know. And we, we are influenced by a million different things in this world from the time that we're born. We're influenced by our parents. We're influenced by our society, our culture, what we see on TV, the messages that our, that our governments give us, our friends, our families. And so the, the scriptures are here. They are prophetic because they challenge us to, to lift our eyes above our culture and to lift our eyes to God. And to see what God wants us to do. And that, is, it, that isn't always the same thing of what our culture wants us to do or what our, even what our nation or our government wants us to do. And so the scriptures are replete with all of these, these stories, a lot of stories of violence, a lot of stories of remarkable stories of what we could call nonviolence or pacifism. And, uh, and I think part of the challenge that we have is, is trying to sort through all of these scriptures that, that seem to be, to sometimes give conflicting messages. Uh, so on, on the one hand, Jesus is the prince of peace, but then on the other hand, you have all these stories in the scriptures, especially in places like the Old Testament, where it seems like God is condoning violence, even, even uh, really horrible things like genocide. So so what is a believer to do with all of this? And, and of course, we don't have time to, to get into to all of this. People have written hundreds and thousands of pages wrestling with these issues. But for me, I think the key thing and and the thing that came out of this 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 book for me the, the one of the biggest takeaways is is that i think when we come to the scriptures we have to recognize that there's a difference between what the scripture how the scriptures deal with violence in a descriptive mode in terms of simply describing what fallen sinful human beings have done to one another uh versus a prescriptive mode in terms of what the scriptures prescribe uh, or counsel or admonish followers of Christ to do in their lives. And so I, I think part of our challenge is to recognize what in the scriptures is simply descriptive of what fallen humanity does and what in the scriptures is prescriptive of what the follower of Christ should do. And oftentimes those things are quite different. And, and if we focus on the prescriptive parts of the scriptures, I think they'll, they'll be prophetic in terms of moving us to, towards a greater path towards peace.
0: As I picked up the book and was looking through it, like I said, I expected you or the purpose of the book and you and the other two editors to essentially take those of us who are Latter-day Saints on a very conservative side who perhaps will justify uh, war for certain reasons and, and maybe strip down that foundation and help us see it in a new light. And just as the book was doing that at times, it was interesting. I came upon a part that spoke about the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. And how we see them often in the Book of Mormon as these pacifists who are, you know, burying their weapons of war in the ground. But, but in the book, it kind of talks about how we don't really see that maybe in the right light as the scripture intends us to. Would you do you have a moment that you can maybe talk about that? Yeah, sure. I,
2: I think one of the really strong essays in the in the volume is is the first chapter, and it's by David Pulsifer, one of the co-editors, and he calls it the Ammonite Conundrum, and and he talks about, uh, you know. Everybody likes to go to the scriptures like we were just talking about to confirm what they already believe. And so so people who are on kind of more of a just war side uh, go to the stripling warriors and they say, look, at, look at these these great young men who were righteous. They were so righteous that God pre- uh, preserved them in battle that none of them died. Uh, isn't this wonderful that we can go and we can fight for family and faith? Uh, And freedom and and God will protect us and bless us. And whereas pacifists, of course, look at their parents and say, isn't this the paradigm, what it means to be a disciple of Christ, to bear literally bury our weapons in the war, to be willing to suffer death. Rather than to, 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 do violence to other people. And look at the result. It actually converts more people than, than, than die. So, so I, I, think sometimes people on either side of the camp, the pacifists on the one side and the just war people on the other side, use, you know, the, these two generations of Lamanites to bludgeon one another over right. the head. And, and what David talks about in this essay is he says, actually, there's a conundrum here is and, and this is what I was talking about with the prophetic quality of Scripture, is that Scripture actually doesn't let either camp off the hook. is Scripture is prophetic towards the pacifists, saying, hey, look at these stripling warriors. I mean, these people were blessed by God. Uh, you can't dismiss that. These, these were the children of, of the most famous pacifists in the Book of Mormon, and, and, and they went to war. But the but the Book of Mormon doesn't let, let the just war people off the hook, either, uh, saying, you know, that uh, uh, in, in, in this case in particular, that these parents, these converted Lamanites who buried their weapons, I mean, th- these are, are really held up uh, in, in the ways the Mormon talks about them uh, in, in his editing of the book. I mean, th- this is what it means, really, truly, to be a disciple. So, so this is, Scripture doesn't let it, any of us off easy. We all have to wrestle with this. Uh, I, I do think that Scripture points us in, in some directions. The, the Book of Mormon, the New Testament, the Doctrine and Covenants, all of them, I think it points us in certain directions. But what David's trying to do in that essay is to say, none of us get off the hook. None of us can rest easy in, in our uh, in our comfortable assumptions. And, and that actually uh, Scripture challenges us uh, to, to wrestle with these issues.
0: That's That's great, because Kind of in preparation for this interview, what I was thinking about, and obviously this podcast deals with answering tough questions and trying to get people who are struggling a way to work within the church, as Elder Holland would say, leading with faith. And oftentimes when we draw distinct lines in the sand that essentially says, sorry, but if you believe any position other than this, you can't be a fully participating active member of the church – but, like you 're pointing to in reality, when we go back to the scriptures and take them as a whole and not just pick and choose which ones we want to defend our position, we take it as a whole, we find out that scriptures like life are much more nuanced than than what we maybe first think they 're going to be when we open them up
2: absolutely and and, and for me uh, look i mean i 'll put my cards on the table i 'm more on the on the pacifist side and and uh, pretty committed to to christian nonviolence but uh I have to when when I read the Book of Mormon, I have to say, hey, when I get to the celestial kingdom, uh which I hope to do, uh, Captain Moroni is gonna be there to greet me, right? Uh, so, so he's gonna he's gonna be there in in heaven. And 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 a lot of these righteous warriors, these these prophet warrior warriors from throughout the scriptures, they're gonna be there in, in heaven. And so so I can't just say heaven is for the anti Nephi Lehi's, you know? And, uh, and I have to wrestle with that and, can, and come to terms with that myself. I can't be so holier than now that I exclude a lot of my fellow brothers and sisters who have, who have faithfully, uh, and sincerely wrestled with some of these issues and come to a different conclusion than I have. I I recently participated. There's a great group of people, uh, uh, Latter-day Saint national security professionals. They have a conference. It's been every 10 years, and they just they just had it uh, a few months ago in Washington D.C. and and uh, I was privileged to attend. And these are. These are Latter-day Saints, committed Latter-day Saints, who are involved in all kinds of different facets of the national security apparatus for the United States government, the FBI, CIA, the military, uh, intelligence, all, all, all kinds of things. And, I mean, these are sincere, dedicated people who themselves have a range of opinions. Not all, they don't all agree on everything. They're not all hawks. Some of them are, are actually quite conflicted and, and even uh, pretty close to being pacifists. I mean, so, so we do have a range of opinions and we can't just judge one another. We can't point fingers and we can't say, you don't belong in the church. You're not a real disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, because the, the scriptures are uh, ambivalent and even conflicted on some of these things. Again, I think there's a general direction that the scriptures point us to, uh, but, but we can't say, we can't uh, rule people out of heaven. That's not our job.
0: You spoke a little bit there about Captain Moran at the beginning of that thought, and I want to just ask you about him. When we read about Captain Moroni in the scriptures, we see this this person who at a very young age enters the military and essentially spends his entire life uh, fighting against the Lamanites and at times justifying war and he gives the reasons for those and uses the title of liberty as the example. But maybe if you could just speak to a moment about Captain Moroni and maybe how we could maybe see him, Beyond just the surface level,
2: right? I I think you know Captain Moroni is is one of the the compelling and, and really memorable characters in the Book of Mormon. There's so much of the Book of Mormon devoted to that. All, you know those those war chapters in Alma. It's it's uh, uh, that some people just like to skip over. They say I, I don't get anything out of them. Other people love reading them. So so <laughs> I mean they're sort of polarizing on that sense too. But but Captain Moroni I think is a really interesting character, and it does I do think. That clearly a, a first level reading is, is that Captain Moroni is, is one of the great heroes. There, there's that passage we always quote, I think it's from chapter 48 of Alma that says, you know, if, if everyone was like Moroni had the character of Moroni, the very foundations of hell would be shaken. Well, well, that's a, that's a pretty ringing endorsement, uh, that, that Mormon gives, uh, of course, you know, a few hundred years later as he's compiling this record.
1: Right. And,
2: and, you know, I, I think captain Moroni can, can be a little bit tough he, he's sometimes a uh, he, he can he can show flashes of anger. Uh, he can be a little bit hot headed uh, sometimes in his prosecution of the war uh, he he uses tactics uh, with, with I, which I think don 't meet even uh, traditional just war criteria. Uh, uh, but but uh, on the other hand, he's 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 a defender of of these things that, that we value, faith and freedom, and and uh, in correspondence with prophets and and so forth. So so I think he's he's a he's a challenging figure. I uh, my reading of Captain Moroni, my my personal reading is again falls along these lines of descriptive versus prescriptive. I think in some ways Captain Moroni is the paradigmatic Christian warrior. Uh, I do think he's, he's a person who's who's acting with the best of intentions, trying to preserve his people, trying to act with righteousness uh, as best he can, but also is swept up in in the inevitable horrors that, that are war. and And he sometimes makes tactical decisions. Uh, which I would say aren't fully in line with the true spirit of, of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. And I think my reading of the Book of Mormon is that the prophet Mormon, the compiler of uh, Mormon, I think he undergoes something of a conversion himself. I think uh, early in his life, uh, maybe when he's first compiling the plays he, he clearly has deep admiration for Captain Moroni, names his own son after him. Uh, but uh, but I think by the end, Mormon himself has come to, a, a, I think, a deeper understanding of what the gospel of Jesus Christ calls its followers to do. And in his very last message, his very last chapter that he writes, Mormon chapter 7, what is the message? It's know you have to lay down your weapons of war. So So I think by the end of his life, it's no longer Captain Moroni who is the the paradigm of the Christian disciple, but rather the anti Nephi lehis who did themselves lay down their weapons of war. So so I, I think you see some of this dramatic tension even in the way that the Book of Mormon is compiled. Uh and uh Captain Moroni is a great hero to many and and, and I think that's fine. Again, he, he's gonna be in heaven uh when when we all get there. Uh and and, and, and we can't dismiss that. Uh, but but I also think that uh, in the end, it's not Captain Moroni who's our north star for mor- morality, but rather the Savior, Jesus Christ.
0: That's a good point. Like you were saying, there, of course, we can take the one scripture and we can hold Captain Moroni up on a pedestal. But when we see his epistles he sent back and forth, was it Pahoran that he sent them to? And so he sends these epistles back and forth, and you can just get the feel that he overreacts a little bit. He's a little hot-headed. But again, that kind of speaks to the point that we're all flawed. We all have weaknesses. We're all imperfect, and we kind of go overboard sometimes, taking imperfect people in the scriptures and making assumptions that they're almost perfect, or you know, or almost you know that close to it. Well, that's Um, why I
2: think uh, Elder Holland's quote from this most recent general conference is so great: that that all God's ever had to work with is flawed, imperfect people, and how frustrating that must be for Him. Right. And, right. and, yeah. and Captain Marona is no different than you and me. And, and so, so why should I hold him to a higher standard uh, than I, than I hold myself, recognizing my own flaws and limitations? And so, so I, I think. We have to approach the, the scriptures and, and the characters in the scriptures, even the ones who are held up as great uh, examples for us, and in many ways are, but recognize that we're all flawed. We all need the atonement. That's why Christ came for all of us. There is only one perfect example. So if I hold up Captain Moroni as my ideal, as my example, as if I put his poster up on my wall and I look to him, I'm going to be going down the wrong path. Uh, that, that, would, that would be true of any mortal human being. Uh, the, the only person that I can follow fully and reliably, 100%, is Jesus Christ. He's the only perfect example.
0: Yeah, you know, when you speak of the scriptures, and as we're talking about Captain Moroni, it reminds me a lot of church. You know, we go to church for three hours a week, and you see people who are dressed nice, they're smiling, they're happy, everything is well. And It never fails for me, and I don't mean this as a put-down to anybody I've spent time with, but once you get into someone's home, and you're around them, and they... They relax a little bit, and they're they're they don't necessarily have their best face on. Um, then you realize that all of us are 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 flawed. All of us um, make mistakes. All of us have a, a temperament of one kind or another. And and the scriptures shouldn't be seen any other way than than the way life plays out too. Yeah. Um. I want to ask you about the Old Testament. This is where I really get kind of stuck. And I want to share with you maybe my thought and get some of your thoughts on this. But we see in the Old Testament a lot of violence that at least from what we're being told by those who are telling the story is violence that is both ordered and condoned by heavenly father or the savior if we consider him obviously the god of the Old Testament. How do you deal with that? Well, uh I
2: I take a couple of different approaches to this, and and I recognize that it might be different than than what a lot of, the the way that a lot of Latter-day Saints approach the Old Testament. Uh, For me, I see the story of Scripture as overall, and, and the Old Testament's a great example of this, as God reaching down to humans where they're at in their fallenness, in their depravity, in their sin, in their violence, God reaching down to humans and trying to lift them out of it. And he oftentimes can't do so radically and immediately because God respects our, our agency. Uh, and so, so he tries to lift us out gradually. And I read the Old Testament, especially when you look at it as an entire text from the beginning to the end as as a transformation in God gradually lifting his people out of a sin of violence. The Old Testament begins with a narrative of violence, with with uh Cain slaying Abel and it and it descends from there quickly to the point that the God, you know, uh as as the story says, has to purge the earth. Uh, uh, entirely with the flood because of the violence of, of his children. And actually the Pearl of Great Price gives, gives us even, and Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible gives us even better insight on that. And, and it doesn't seem to get much better from there. Even, even the heroes of the Old Testament, a lot of the prophets of the Old Testament, I mean, these these are guys who would be doing time in modern America, they're, they're murderers, or they're liars, or they're adulterers. Uh, I mean, you know, even, even the good guys are seriously flawed. I think that's one of the reasons why people have seen the, the Old Testament as such a powerful literary text, even people who don't believe in it, because these are real human beings and they're flawed human beings. And for me, I see God reaching down and trying to lift them out of it. And so by, by the second half of the Old Testament, by the time you get to the prophets, to Isaiah, to Jeremiah, to Ezekiel, to Micah, uh, to others, what is the message there? God's not condoning genocide there uh, by any stretch. He is prophetic against his people, saying, you all have sinned. Israel has sinned against me. And what does it take to, to follow me, to be in a covenant with me? To to do justice, to walk humbly before the Lord, to take care of the widow and the orphan, uh, to embrace the stranger rather than to to go after them to kill them, uh, and so so we see a very different thing. And so I read the Old Testament as as an entire text. And and what do I do with some of those cases where where it seems like God is is condoning uh, even ordering violence? Frankly, I, I'll have to say that uh, I wrestle I with them. I don't know. Part of it I have to put on the shelf. But I also think that, that sometimes humans think they hear the voice of God when what they're really hearing is is the voice inside
0: themselves. That's a good point. That was the point I wanted to make. When I, when I see the story, I'll give an example. Elijah and the she-bear uh, tearing apart these youth who are making fun of him. And when I read that story in the Old Testament, I almost get the feeling like we often want to paint ourselves as the good guy and anybody who is against us is the enemy of God. And whenever something happens that maybe justifies us or or something occurs that seems more than coincidence, we want to make a parallel that God is defending us and and righting all the wrongs that have happened to us. And so I almost picture, here's Elijah out in the woods and these these young uh, youth come out and are making fun of him. And just by coincidence, this bear happens to hear them, and maybe the bear has a baby bear, you know, 15 feet away, because we know it's a she-bear, and it comes out and mauls these these little kids. And Elijah, the first thing he's going to do is say, see, God vindicated me. But in reality, that may not be what's happening at all. And, and I, I really appreciate your view. I I'm so much for trying to give people flexibility within faith, that if one wants to see God as the... Doer of all things in every single instance of the scriptures, then great, have at it. But for those who struggle with that, to also give them some flexibility to allow them to kind of make heads and tails in a way that, that they can reconcile instances like a she-bear coming out of the woods and, and hurting young, young youth. Well,
2: I, I, I think, uh, that, that's a great point. And I, I think this is really essential for Latter-day Saints, and I, I think that we haven't all learned how to read our scriptures this way, in the sense of, Oftentimes we're asking the question, what is God like, right? We, we can't see God. You know, we, we, we pray to him, but he's not here. So it can be hard for us to imagine what is God like. Right. But we actually know exactly what God is like because he revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ. God, the son, came to the world, lived among us. We have a faithful record of him through the Gospels, uh, and we know what God is like, uh, and it's the Savior Jesus Christ. And so when we read scripture that way, when you say, this is what God is like. God is a God of compassion, of mercy, of love. God is love, John tells us, right? And, and God loved us so much that he sent his son to come and live among us and then eventually to, to die the most unjust death that's ever happened on this earth and to, to do so to rescue us from our sin. From our violence, from our depravity, to show us a better way, to save us from our sins—that's what God is like. And so, so when I go back to the Old Testament, part of it I have to read through those eyes because because God didn't change. God didn't. God didn't change. Jesus wasn't a bad guy and then became a good guy. No, his his people changed, and and he's trying to rescue his people. He's trying to redeem his people. And so, so a lot of those those stories uh, in in the Old Testament, you, you really do see a progression where where Israel is very clannish, they're parochial, they're insular, until by the end of the Old Testament, especially in the New Testament, Jesus says, guess who Israel is? It's everybody. And God loves everybody. He doesn't just love you. And God doesn't have enemies. God does not have enemies, because we're all his children. And so when you set yourself up, Israel versus Gentiles and, and the Canaanites and all this kind of stuff, that's, that's a narrow view. That's a parochial clannish view of god and jesus comes and says no you know what god is like god loves everybody he sends his reign on on the just and the unjust and we are all children of god and he invites us to come into relationship with him and and into covenant with him and and the covenant is is available to everybody so so i I think we have to look at the the long sweep and recognize that actually if 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 we really believe in christ that the christ we, we have to read christ into all the scriptures not just the new testament and
0: even when we look at the life of Christ, I mean, the only moment where he tends to show any kind of violence is when he's clearing out the temple and he's overturning the tables. But even in that instance, he doesn't hurt anybody. He's not, he's not twisting arms and grabbing ears. He's simply overturning their, their behavior, the outward expression of, of, of these things and, and sends them packing. Um, but by no means is anybody, we don't get the impression from reading the story that someone's killed or someone's hurt in this, this uh, intense moment, and, and it
2: certainly would have been reported if if, if there had been because uh, he right. had enough enemies at that point, and and we know that I mean in, in the garden, uh, uh, of course, uh, you know what, what happens is that the Peter slices off the ear, and and what does Christ do? He, he, he's a healer. That, that's that's what he does. He's a reconciler, and he says, "Don't don't you think I could call down the legions of angels? I mean, I, I'm in control here." Right the temple guard isn't in control the sanhedrin isn't in control peter you're certainly not in control i'm in control here and what i'm going to do right now is i'm going to reveal what god is like god suffers for his children god weeps with his children god is merciful god uh, god does not cut off people's ears i mean you know god heals that's that, right. that, that's what God does. And so so Jesus says, I'm going to reveal to you what God is really like. And and, and he marches to, to his torture and eventually to to his death. And I can't forget, Jesus doesn't march to his death. He marches to his resurrection. And and the, the his experience, his torture and his uh and his crucifixion, those are preludes to the real reality, which is his resurrection, that God. Triumphs over Satan. God triumphs over this world, and He does through through the ultimate act of love, uh, which is the atonement.
0: Wonderful. That's beautiful. Let's uh, let's move to for a moment to specifically the scriptures in our dispensation, uh the Book of Mormon, and uh, and then even those that were written um, by prophets in this dispensation, the Doctrine and Covenants. The Book of Mormon. Uh, let me ask you this: Does it support a just war?
2: Uh, I think one reading of it does, but I think a Christological reading of it forces us to say, actually, the fullest way of the disciple of the Prince of Peace is peace, and you don't achieve peace through war. So I do think a, a Christological reading of the Book of Mormon su- suggests that Christ calls us out of violence and out of war, but in the meantime, recognizing that, that in a fallen world, in a world that's terrestrial at best, uh, that uh, that those who, who follow uh, uh, path of just war, uh, according to the principles laid out in the Book of Mormon and later in the Doctrine and Covenants, and these are very restrictive principles, actually. It's very specific on when somebody is justified in going to war, uh, not necessarily blessed or sanctified, but justified in going to war, uh, then, then God
0: does uh, allow that. Gotcha. That's good. Doctrine and Covenants clearly says to renounce war and proclaim peace, but we also kind of have a contradiction when we have the Article of Faith, which says that we're to support our political leaders. Uh, So I guess a couple of questions to kind of follow with that. Is it possible to do both at the same time, especially when our nation's leaders take us to war?
2: I think so and uh we we always have our agency and we can support principles of constitutional government we can support our leaders uh even through acts of civil disobedience if we choose so 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 we may choose to uh to, to, to go to war to participate in the military uh latter day prophets have told us for a long time that, that that's an acceptable route for the latter day saints so, so I trust and and believe that, that that that's true. But we also, for for those who are are troubled by that, there is another path of of civil disobedience, of conscientious objection, uh, and uh, and there are times we have to recognize that, that, that the government is simply wrong. And you know, I think one of the great heroes of Mormonism is Helmut Hubner, who the, the the Mormon teenager in Nazi Germany, who who said who looked, who listened to BBC radio broadcasts illicitly and said, oh, my goodness, what, what, a, what kind of government am I living in? And, uh, and, he, uh, and he started to put up leaflets and pamphlets uh, protesting the actions of, of Hitler and, and Nazi, the Nazi government. He was eventually uh, uh, captured by the SS and executed he was excommunicated by his branch president who was an officer in in, uh, in uh, a Nazi officer and uh but later reinstated after the war but but here's a person did did Helmut Hubner violate the 12th article of faith or did he actually fulfill the spirit of it and i would i would say the latter and uh so so we do we always retain our agency and i think we especially in a democracy we have the right the duty and the privilege uh, to, to engage with our governments. And if we feel like the government is doing something wrong, we have the right to protest and, and disagree. Uh, or we have the right to, to go along. If we feel that the government is in the right and that a war is just, uh, then we can participate in the military as well. And the, and the latter day prophets have, have told us that.
0: So we started off the podcast talking a little bit about why the book or why the church even has a role to play within the issue of war and peace. Uh, in military action specifically, so I want to kind of start wrapping up and, and ask you this this way: What is the relationship of the church in the nation? These two entities in regards to military and, and other forms of violence.
2: Well, I think especially uh, since eighteen the eighteen nineties, the uh, LDS Church has recognized fully the the authority of the state and has recognized a kind of separate spheres: the 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 the, the state. Has authority in some uh, matters, and the church has authority in other matters. And, uh, and and this is this isn't just from the 1890s; it's also uh, from the 1830s, and and the Declaration on Government, and and eventually uh, what we, what we have uh, in, in in the Doctrine and Covenants in uh, section 134, and uh, the, the statement written by Oliver Calgary. And so so we we do have a sense that uh we We recognize we acknowledge that governments that nation states do have a role for maintaining order and stability and ideally even a kind of peace uh, in this world but But the church doesn 't cede all of its authority to to the state, and the church always operates as an alternative the church is the we could say the midwife of zion zion isn't among us yet in its fullest sense but but the the church points the way uh to to zion and the church provides a kind of alternative society i mean it's it's remarkable uh you know we really do have peace with, within the church we have our disagreements obviously and things but but, but the church uh you know living the mormon way uh, living according to the teachings of the church does bring peace in people's lives. It brings peace in people's families. It brings peace in people's communities. Uh, and and if and 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 leaders of the church tell us over and over, and they're absolutely true, if we lived according to the to the principles that the gospel teaches, we could have peace. Uh, now, will it bring about world peace? Uh, not yet. Uh, and and Christ Himself didn't bring about world peace. That's not what He promised. Uh, but he he did point the way, and and he said that within a world of sin, the disciples of the Prince of Peace can have peace. And so the church always stands as as an alternative to the larger society, as as something closer to the celestial kingdom, saying this is a better way to live.
0: And so I want to wrap up with one last question, which kind of ties into what you were just talking about, and that is that whenever we've had a a military action in, say, the last, well, since the beginning of this dispensation, really, because we can go back to when Brigham Young asked the saints uh, to participate uh, in a military uh, uh exercises back then with the U.S. government. So I guess the way I want to ask this is, since the beginning of this dispensation, church leaders, prophets and apostles, have, I don't want to say condoned, um, but they certainly have supported us participating in uh, the wars, the other conflicts that have taken place within this country. So with them having taken that stance, how how can an LDS member who wants to be faithful, active, worthy, participating in the church, how can they reconcile going against what they perceive as church leaders uh, vindicating this military action?
2: Right. That's absolutely true, especially since the Spanish-American War, the... uh, the 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 church was somewhat more ambivalent about things like the civil war and actually Brigham Young didn't send send people to fight in the civil war but certainly for the past 120 years uh, that's that's been the consistent position of of church leaders but we have to recognize that they have never forced latter-day saints or actively uh, you know mobilized the the youth of the church and sent them into to military service but they have said it's permissible it's permissible for latter-day saints uh, to do this, and what re- what latter day saints are required to do is is to work for good to to work for we believe in freedom we we believe in justice uh, we believe in uh, relieving suffering, we believe in opposing evil all of these things uh, the prophets have said th- this is part of our duty as latter day saints. And so one way in which they've said that the people can fill those duties is in uh, military service. And so a lot of Latter-day Saints uh, throughout the 20th and 21st centuries have have engaged in military service. But but that's not the only way to, to fight evil. It's not the only way to fight justice. And there has been a, a long, a, a minority tradition, but a long tradition among Latter-day Saints of conscientious objection who have said that I don't believe that the best way to fight evil, to, vi- to fight violence, to, to do good, to relieve suffering. I don't think the best way to do that is through military suffering, but, but the best way to do that is through working for peace. Uh, and, uh, take, uh, bringing a kind of nonviolent witness to, to the nation. Maybe it's serving in the Peace Corps. Maybe it's, it's fighting against war, uh, working for the abolition of war. Uh, uh, you know, the, 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 there's a range of things that, 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 people can do in terms of, of, uh, uh, active nonviolence. And so, so I think uh, for for a Latter Day Saint who is troubled by militarism, who who reads the scriptures and finds in it a, a, a message of Christian nonviolence and pacifism, I think they can absolutely be faithful to that because I I do think that's the core of the message of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They can be faithful to that politically and also be faithful to the Latter Day Prophets who who do encourage us to do good, to be engaged, to to, to be active citizens. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you have to take up a rifle in your hands. There's other ways to be an active uh, and engaged uh, citizen on these issues. And sometimes uh, a witness for peace uh, means not being in the military.
0: Perfect. I want to just kind of conclude here. The When this uh, conference was put on where these essays were all uh, given, did you guys know then that this was going to eventually become a book?
2: We hoped it would. I mean, you never know because you don't know what kind of quality you're going to get from, from people. But that's what we were so, um, I shouldn't say surprised by because we expected that people would do well and, and we knew we had a good lineup. But, but we were thrilled with, with the depth, the, the nuance, the thoughtfulness, the faithfulness of, of these, uh, papers and, uh, so, so we got exactly what we hoped for, and and I think it, and, and we all felt like it merited publication, and, and we were glad that, that it finally did become a book.
0: That's great. I know the book as a whole, if I can just put one little plug in for it, it's that whenever whatever extreme we come from or whatever position we come from, I think this book will make you think twice about that position and cause you to maybe reflect for a while and consider maybe if it's if it's a stance that each of us have that maybe needs to change a little bit. Patrick, where can they find your book at? Uh, it's published by Greg Koford Books,
2: so you can find it on the Koford Books website. So either there or Amazon are probably the best ways to get it.
0: Excellent. And uh, any last thoughts before we let you go? No, I, re- I really appreciate this. I mean, I
2: think uh, for, for us, we, we came to this project uh, not feeling like we had all the answers. I don't think I'm smart enough to, to have all the answers or to tell anybody what to do on these very complicated issues. But I think the best we can do is raise the questions, ask deep and searching and penetrating questions, point people to the scriptures. Uh, to, to the messages of the prophets, and most of all to Jesus Christ himself, and then let let faithful engaged latter day saints uh, uh, wrestle with these things, pray and, and search and and come to a determination on their own of of the best way for them to to follow Christ.
0: I, I think what you said there at the end, I just want to conclude with this. What you said there at the end about wrestling with God, coming to some spiritual answers on on these questions that are deep. I wish that applied to everything in the gospel. I wish, I wish each of us who perhaps sees these firm lines in the sand would be more, uh, more seeking, more reflective, more, more trying to wrestle with our, our father in heaven over these, these deep questions. And I think if we did that, like your book, we would each, uh, be open to a lot more nuance within uh, within the subjects and principles and doctrines of the kingdom. Right, and ultimately,
2: I mean, we're hopefully we're not uh, wrestling with God; we're wrestling with ourselves, you know, to, in in order to get to to a point where where God wants us to be. I mean, I love that image in, in the Old Testament of Jacob wrestling with the angel, right? I and mean, we have to, you know, this, this stuff—it's um, not easy, you know—to to to live a life of faith uh and uh and and so it does require a, a wrestle before God and uh and, and and the the thing that we're just blessed by is knowing that, that he loves us he wants us to to come to him and uh and and he'll do he'll do what he can to meet us where we're at
0: we've uh we've had a chance here to sit down with Patrick Mason uh, one of the editors on War and Peace in our time Mormon perspectives I'd like to thank Greg Koford Books for helping to put this together. Uh, As Patrick pointed out, his uh, book can be found at uh, gregkoford.com. Come
1: thou fount of every blessing, Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious star sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Here I raise my Ebenezer Here by thy great help I've come And I hope by thy good pleasure Safely to arrive at home Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God To rescue me from danger Interposed His precious blood blood. Oh, that day when freed from sinning I shall see Thy lovely face Clothed then in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing Thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry, take my ransom soul away, send Thine angels now to carry me to realms of